Our first reading this morning is uh, from Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father Abraham, Father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. And when they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. The angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Amen. Our second reading is from the first letter of John, and beginning at the first verse, I'm reading on into chapter 2. We declare to you what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and what we touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed and we have seen it and testify to it and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. We declare to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we are walking in darkness, we lie and do not do what is true. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, <clears throat> we have fellowship with one another.
and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus the righteous. And he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Amen. Today is that day in the Christian calendar, sometimes referred to as Low Sunday. Have you heard that phrase? It it turns out no one's quite sure why it's referred to as Low Sunday. Uh, It's a day with some significance for me because it was on Low Sunday 2012 that I commenced my ministry here at Bloomsbury. So today is my, uh, liturgically at least, if not by exact date, this is my six-year anniversary. Well, why is it called Low Sunday? Possibly it's because with Easter Sunday being one of the high feast days, the following Sunday feels, by contrast, something of a low. Possibly it comes from the Latin laudes, meaning let us praise, which was the opening word of a medieval sung prayer, calling people to worship. Possibly it's a reference to the fact that the numbers of bums on seats is traditionally lower in the week following Easter, as congregation sizes return to their more normal levels after the higher attendance at the great festival. However, I think I prefer a different name for today which is also rather wonderfully known as Quasimodo Sunday. Uh, Before Philip gets carried away again and starts blowing the cobwebs out of the Bloomsbury Beast in tribute to the great organ at Notre Dame, the reason Quasimodo in Victor Hugo's novel has that name is because he is abandoned as a baby on the steps of Notre Dame Cathedral on the Sunday after Easter. And the term actually comes from the opening words of the traditional Latin introit for today, quasi modo geniti infantes, which translates into English as, like newborn infants, we come to God. And those of you who have been paying attention may have noticed that this quote from 2 Peter was quite deliberately our call to worship for this morning. Like newborn infants, we come to God, seeking pure spiritual milk. I was having a a, a bit of a thought to myself about the image to use, because I I wanted to put an image with that as part of our scrolling notices. And I was thinking, well, if we come to God like newborn infants, longing for pure spiritual milk, this this is a baby at the mother's breast, is it not? This is one of the feminine images for God. So here we are, the week after Easter, a season during which we have enacted the great truths of the Christian faith, and yet 
we come just seven days later as newborn infants, starting all over again. Still fresh in our memories, we can recall the long fast of Lent, reminding us of our excesses and calling us to lives of simplicity. We can still hear the joy of Palm Sunday ringing in our ears. The fellowship of Maundy Thursday is still calling us to thanksgiving and will keep calling us to the table as the year goes around. The horror of Good Friday is still haunting our souls. The waiting of Holy Saturday is still gnawing at our hearts. And the exaltation of Easter Day is still stirring us and lifting us up to new life. But after all of this, we come to today as newborn infants longing for pure spiritual milk. There's a circularity of the Christian year here, as the resurrection calls us to start all over again and ask what it is we're going to build our life on. What nourishment will we take within us this year that will help us to grow as children of God? What are we going to allow to shape us? Are we just going to go back to how things were before Shrove Tuesday and Ash Wednesday called us to the Lenten and Easter journey? Or has something changed for us over the last two months? What kind of a Christian are we going to be going forwards from today? What God are we going to believe in? What will we build our lives on from today? You see, I suggest today is a day for big decisions because we come to today as newborn children. However old we may be in terms of years, we are all today infants before God. And it's in this context of new beginnings that I want us to hear our reading for this morning from the first letter of John which begins at the beginning. And that, as the king advised the white rabbit in Wonderland, is always a good place to begin. We declare to you what was from the beginning, begins the letter. What we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was revealed, and we have seen it and testify it, and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and has been revealed to us. So, the letter that John writes starts significantly with the revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And in true Johannine style, in the style of the other documents that bear the name of John, you know, the Gospel, the other letters, Book of Revelation, a kind of code word is used for Jesus. And in language reminiscent of the prologue to John's Gospel, Jesus is referred to here as the Word. Now in this case, in the case of the letter, it's not the pre-existent Word of creation that it is in the beginning of the Gospel. Rather, Jesus is presented in the first letter of John as the Word of life. Jesus is the revelation of life. And this life that Jesus brings has some kind of eternal quality to it. It originates with the Father and it is revealed to humans in the life of Jesus. Or to put it another way, 
Life in all its fullness can be found and experienced through an encounter with the life of Jesus. So for those of us gathering as spiritually newborn infants on Quasimodo Sunday, this new life that has come to us and which has caused us to be born again, to use another of the Gospel's phrases, it has been made known to us through our encounter with the story of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, whose life speaks words of life to us. This is the gospel that is ours to share. This is the good news. It is that God, who might otherwise be distant, has been made known to us in the life of Jesus in such a way that those of us who encounter the story of the life of Jesus gain new life ourselves. We are newborn. We are re-given the gift of life through our encounter with the story of Jesus. So all of this Easter story and the death and the resurrection, the gift of that is new life for us today. And so we end up back at the key question I really want to pose this morning. The invitation to start our lives afresh raises, I think, an important question. And the question is this. What God are we going to believe in? What are we going to do from here on today? What are we going to build our life on? And the thing is, there are, as there have always been, plenty of choices about this. It's not, it's not obvious which God we'll believe in. In the ancient world, in the context of the first century, which is where the first letter of John was written to, the decision as to which God you would worship was a very real choice. Some of the early recipients of this letter would have been Jews. They'd have grown up worshipping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In fact, the author of the letter, whoever he was, and it's not entirely clear, was, was himself a Jew who had converted to worshipping Jesus as the Messiah. But some of the other early recipients of this letter would have been what became known as pagans, those who had grown up worshipping the gods of the Greek and Roman pantheon, and also possibly worshipping the emperor as a god. There were numerous competing gods available for you to worship in the first century, and these different gods were encountered in a variety of different ways. The God of the Jews was known through the stories of the Jewish faith and through the worship practices of the synagogues and the temple until its destruction in the year 70, just a, a few years before this letter was written. The gods of the Greeks and the Romans, on the other hand, were known through their stories and idols and images and temples, and the worship of them formed the backbone to the structure of first century society. Interestingly, to decline to worship these gods was an act of rebellion, an act of civil disobedience. You could get into a lot of trouble for not worshipping the emperor. The Jews, with their historic worship of their god, had negotiated a kind of uneasy truce with Rome, by which they had some protection under the Roman law to allow them to worship their god, but there were strict regulations preventing them from seeking to convert others to their faith, and they were often an easy target for scapegoating within the ancient world. And whilst early Christianity, which was you know, in effect in its very earliest years a kind of Jewish breakaway sect, 
for a few years enjoyed some of those protections. By the time the letter of John is being written, with, with Gentiles and pagans coming into the Christian faith too, those protections were breaking down. And it was getting pretty dodgy to worship God revealed in Jesus. So it's into all of this. Uh, early Christians, like the author of our letter this morning, were trying to say something new about God revealed in Christ. If you want to know God, they were saying, you don't look primarily to the Jewish scriptures or to the worship practices of the synagogues or to the idols and images and stories of the pagan pantheon or even to the emperor in Rome himself. Rather, you look to the stories of the life of Jesus. And what you discover if you do this, says our letter, what you discover is a new vision of God a new understanding of who God is and how God can be known. And here it is, that the heart of chapter 1 of this letter. Verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. What God? God is light. What does that God look like? He looks like light. In him is no darkness at all. And then, at this point in the letter, the word life drops out of use for a little bit. It's replaced with the word light, another typically Johannine concept. We get it a lot in the gospel. The word that has been seen and heard and encountered, the word of light is the word of life. What comes into the world through the word of life is a vision of God who is pure light. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. This kind of understanding of God stood in stark contrast with the competing visions of the gods that would otherwise have been familiar to the early recipients of the letter. And I might want to suggest that for us to grasp an idea that God is light and life might similarly stand in contrast to many of the gods that vie for our attention in our world as well. In the first century, people believed that some of the gods were angry and some of the gods were capricious and some of them were gluttonous and some of them were lustful and some of them were unfaithful and some of them were violent. To say that the gods had no darkness would have been as nonsensical to many of those receiving this letter as would saying that humans had no darkness in them. And this is because the ancient gods had come into being to reflect human nature. They kind of took all of our glories and our failures and all of our light and all of our darkness and wrote them across the heavens. The reason there were so many gods in the ancient world was because humans are so complicated and you needed a different god for each facet of human behavior and, and life. And the Jewish understanding of one God, which stood against this idea of many gods, had emerged similarly in a context of worshipping lots of different gods. Uh, the Jewish religion, of course, had, had emerged a thousand years earlier, not in contrast to the Roman or Greek gods of the first century, but in contrast to the multiple tribal gods of the ancient Near East, where different groups of people had different gods, and different areas had different gods. And the Jewish belief that God is one rather than many 
was a radical departure from the beliefs of the nations surrounding them. It was a radical departure from the Greek and Roman uh, idea of there being many gods in the first century. And we have inherited this idea that God is one. And I think that also is a radical departure from the many different voices that call for our allegiance in our world. There is a continuity here. One way of reading the Old Testament is to see it as a testimony to the Jewish attempt to understand their conviction that God is one and not many. The different stories of the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, are a series of thought experiments concerning the nature of God, as they explore different ways of articulating their unique perspective on faith. Is the one God of the Jews to be worshipped as a consistent, faithful God, or is he capricious and needy, like some of the other gods that are out there? Is the one God a God of war, or is he a God of peace? Does God demand sacrifice or offer mercy? These are important decisions. If you're only going to worship one God, you've got to work out what the God is that you're worshipping. It's kind of easier if you've got a hundred of them, because if you're feeling warlike, you can worship the warlike God, and if you're feeling peaceful, you can worship, worship the peaceful God, and, and so on. But no, if there's only one, what's he like? And the story of Genesis sorry, from Genesis, of, of God testing Abraham that we had as our first reading, where God asks Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. It's a deeply problematic passage, isn't it? And I think this is just such an example of the Jewish exploration of the nature of their God. The question being asked here is whether God is the kind of God who demands a sacrifice from his most faithful follower. At the beginning of the story, in, a, in an echo of the story of Job, God decides to test the faithfulness of Abraham by asking something of him that is you know, surely too costly. And so Abraham and Isaac set off up a hill with Isaac carrying his cross, so to speak, on his shoulders, and it's only at the last moment, once Abraham has proved himself willing to sacrifice his own dearly beloved son, that an angel directs him to an alternative sacrifice, and the ram caught in the thicket is offered in place of the boy. The temptations to allegorize this story onto the crucifixion of Jesus are strong particularly as the stories of Jesus carrying his cross to Golgotha and dying as a substitute for sinful humans was still ringing in our ears from last weekend. But whilst this story was clearly in the minds of the gospel writers, as they reflected on and wrote up their versions of the story of Easter, there's no straightforward allegory to be found here. Because at the heart of the Abraham and Isaac story is still a God who demands a sacrifice. It might not be Isaac in the end, but the ram still has to die in his place in order that he might live. And if we simply substitute Jesus for the ram caught in the thicket and take this as our understanding of what happens on the cross, then we still end up with a God who demands sacrifice unto death. 
And a God who demands death to satisfy his wrath at human sin doesn't sound much like a God who is light and in whom there is no darkness at all. This would be a God of anger and vengeance and violence, not a God of life and love and reconciliation. You see, the conviction that God is life and light challenges us to reconsider our theology of the cross. If our view of the cross is dominated by death and darkness, I want to suggest that something profound has gone astray. If the cross is about God demanding a blood sacrifice and then getting what he demands, we have in a view of God which is predicated on death and darkness. Just saying that God substitutes Jesus for us in the same way that Abraham substituted the ram for Isaac does not solve this problem. What we need is another way of seeing the cross. And I think 1 John tells us that the story of Jesus gives us exactly this. If the story had ended at the cross, then we would be left with a violent God killing his innocent son to satisfy some universal law that sin must be paid for by death. But the story does not end at the cross. And the resurrection gives the lie to this theology. The empty tomb challenges all understandings of God which are predicated on darkness and violence. The events of Easter Sunday tell us that God is about life and not death. Death is a human thing, not a divine thing. As frail mortal beings, we live our lives in the shadow of death. We can postpone it, we can fear it, we can deny it, but we cannot avoid it. But the resurrection tells us that God is not about death. God is about life. And this must therefore mean that God is not about violence. Did you notice me lighting the peace candle? God is not about violence because God is not about death. And if we think God is about death, then we think God is about violence. And if we think God is about violence, then we think God is about death. And neither of those are true, says the resurrection. If we believe that God demands a sacrifice and then offers his son to be that sacrifice... We are making our thing, which is death, God's thing. But God's thing is not death. God's thing is life. And this surely is a grave error if we make our thing God's thing. You see, the truth is that violence and suffering and death are our experience, not God's. Murder is a human action, not a divine one. Jealousy and envy and wrath and rage are human, not godly emotions. And the message of the cross is not that God has become like us, demanding of us a blood sacrifice to atone for our sins. 
Rather, the message of the cross is that God has become one of us, entering into our darkness and our suffering and our death to bring light and life and forgiveness and reconciliation and resurrection. The cross is God's sacrifice offered freely to us, not the other way around. The death of Jesus at the hands of sinners unmasks once and for all the depths of human depravity. It shines the fierce light of God into the darkest corners of the human psyche. It reveals the murderous intent that lies deep in each human soul. And let us not for one moment kid ourselves that it's not there somewhere inside. But it meets that desire for death with an overwhelming gift of life. The worst thing one human can do to another is taken by Jesus into his own body on the cross. And still it is not enough to extinguish the life that breaks through the darkness of death to leave the tomb empty and the darkness defeated. And so we are called to reassess our view of God. We have to lay aside any residual view we may have of God as angry and violent and vengeful. And we have to lay aside any of the excuses we make for our own anger and violence and revenge where we have told ourselves that we are simply enacting the will of God. We need to learn the difficult lesson that darkness lies not within the heart of God, but within our own hearts. The first letter of John got there before us all, of course. Verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But, thankfully, he goes on. Verse 9, If we confess our sins, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the good news of the Easter story. It is a story of life and light, of forgiveness and reconciliation, of peace and overwhelming love. The cross is the ultimate demonstration of God's commitment to life because the cross leads to resurrection. And so God is committed to my life, to your life, to our life together as the body of Christ remembered in this place. And the challenge for us as we gather in the presence of God as newborn infants seeking pure spiritual milk, the challenge is to learn what it is to be born again into the love of God to set aside our addictions to violence, our compulsions to revenge, and our captivity to malice and guile and insincerity and envy and slander. And let's not deceive ourselves that these are not part of us because darkness lies within all our hearts. Let us not deceive ourselves also that these are part of God's nature because God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Rather, Let us find in the story of Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection, a new way of seeing God, who comes to us bringing light and life, 
and forgiveness and reconciliation and a new start and a new way of seeing ourselves. The gift that God gives us is the gift of seeing ourselves as Christ sees us. And that changes everything. Let us pray. God of all light, life and love. We come to you to pray for a world where love is so often lacking, where so many people live in darkness and where life is not experienced in all its fullness. Open the eyes of our hearts that we might see your coming kingdom. We pray for those places where your activity can be clearly seen and discerned. For those good places of love and light and laughter. So we pray this day for our families and we rejoice that good and loving parenting is a reflection of your great love for all your children. Be with those who are parents and may they know the joy of seeing their children grow into independence and maturity. We lift up before you especially those children for whom this is not their experience. Those who live with violent, abusive or inadequate parenting. And we pray for all those entrusted with ensuring the safeguarding of the young and vulnerable in our society and in our church. We pray for all those who this past week have celebrated love through entering into married life and for those in our fellowship who are planning their own forthcoming marriages. We pray particularly for Andrea and Valley, for James and Darren and for Tim and Hannah. We rejoice that love, faithfulness and commitment are gifts from you and we pray for those whose experience of love is one of equality and mutuality. We give you thanks for those moments in our own lives where we have been especially conscious of your presence this week. Help us to see your love at work in our lives. We pray also for those who are blind to your great love. We think of those who struggle to comprehend anything positive in their experience of life. Those who live with mental illness, depression and anger and who find that their eyes remain closed to the goodness of creation despite their desperate desire to find a path to the light. Reach out your healing hand to those who live under the shadow of despair and give the gift of hope that comes through Christ. We pray also for those who see you as a negative, violent and vengeful God, rather than as a God of life, light and love. We think of those whose own experiences of negativity in their family life has shaped for them a negative vision of you.
We pray for those who are ever, forever trying to please an implacable and unforgiving God. For those who live with guilt and hurt and find no forgiveness and healing when they pray. For those who live in fear and not in love. Great God of love, open their eyes to you as the source of eternal love and peace. And come to them through your Son to speak words of life, to bring healing and wholeness. We pray for those places where you are active, but where we cannot see it. Sometimes it can be hard to discern the shape of your kingdom in our world. When we think of those places torn apart by war and famine and natural disaster, we struggle to comprehend how it can be that you are a God of love. We think today of all those killed in the chemical attack in Syria. Lord, we pray for those who live in the midst of horror. And we ask that they will be especially conscious of you with them in the midst of their suffering. Great God of the cross, be with those who are in agony and may it be true for them that the life that you bring can redeem even the horrors of death. We pray for those places where you are active, but people deny or oppose your activity. We pray for those who are wedded to ideas that seem unshakable until they are shaken by you. We pray for those who claim your name to promote restrictive dogma and oppressive religion. We pray for those of all faiths and none who deny your great love through their words, actions, and deeds. Great God of all creation, we rejoice that you are not restricted by creed or confession, and we know that you can open a path to the light of your love even into the darkest corners of the human heart. We pray for those who run from the light because they have become bound to deeds of darkness. Come, Lord Jesus, bring light to our world. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And may our eyes be opened to your kingdom breaking in upon the world. Amen.